Hey folks, great to see you all. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians today again. We're going to be looking at the whole subtitle today, if you want a title, is Un-PC. It's a promise to be Un-PC in what we say. Um, let's pray and then we're going to turn to the Bible. Father, thank you that you're with us today. We love you, God. Thanks so much for the kids uh, and for them expressing their faith and thanks for the fun that they're having through next door just now. I pray that they would have a great time. God, I pray t- today, God, as we take time to dig into some of the great themes in the book of Ephesians. I pray that you would speak to us, that God, for every person here, God, no matter who they are, I pray you'd speak something into their hearts. God, you know people here today, God, who are far from you, and I pray today that you would meet with them, you'd speak to them, you'd draw them close to you. God, for those who already know you, God, I pray that they would have a a deeper revelation of you and an encounter with you in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we get into the Bible, uh, just very briefly during the worship, I believe that there's someone here who's got a compressed spine at the base of their spine, and I believe God wants to heal you. And if that's, if that's you at the end of the service, if you could come forward, uh, along with anyone else who wants to be prayed for for healing, there will be a team of people at the front to pray. So please come forward. Before we get to the verses, let me talk to you a little bit about the theme of what we're talking about today. Twelve years ago, I spent Christmas in Guernsey. It was beautiful. And we, I was, my sister lives there with her husband, Tim, and Tim's family there as well. Tim grew up there. One evening, it was a cold winter's evening, beautiful clear sky. We'd been around at Tim's sister's for lunch, and she is in St. Peter's Port, which is a beautiful bay with steep sides. And to go from Tim's sister's house to the house that we were staying in, you've got to make your way around this edge of the, kind of terraced edge of the bay. So we were making our way around the edge of this bay, and we'd been at Tim's sister's for tea, and it was night time and we were going home. Now, the logical way to go would have been the path, the road, which was uh, street lit, and it would have taken us about 10 minutes longer. But Tim, my brother-in-law, he grew up there. So he figured in the darkness, he could take us around this steep-sided slope through the woodlands because he knew this place like the back of his hand. He grew up there. So what he did was we, we trusted him and we started following him. As we kind of stepped into the darkness, into this woodlands area, knowing there's steep drops either side of us, I said, Tim, you sure this is okay? You sure you know where we're going? And he said, trust me, I know where I'm going. And he went right off the edge of this hill and tumbled down. Very funny, yeah. (laughs) I tried not to laugh because it was incredibly funny at the moment. Once we found out he was alive and safe, we gutted ourselves. We thought it was hysterical. But it was the irony of the fact, trust me, I know where I'm going. (laughs) And he disappeared down this hill. We heard thuds and, and he landed in a bunch of nettles. The next day we went back to the spot and you could see the path going through the trees. Then there was this secondary path that had been kind of flattened grass to the edge of a drop. <laughs> and Tim had gone off that. Thankfully we didn't follow him. Don't worry, follow me. You know, we're part of a world where there's so many spiritual options. Try this way, try that way. Lots of people saying, follow me, try this. And uh, it's a very pluralistic society where there are many options put our way. Uh, and the question is, What's the right way? In the world, we're encouraged encouraged to be politically correct. And in one sense, political correctness is bang on. In another sense, personally, I have problems with it. In the sense that political correctness encourages you to show respect for other people, I 100% agree. Especially showing respect for people who are not like you. That is so essential. Political correctness encourages us to drop words from our language that would be offensive to other people who are not like us. I 110% agree. 
In fact, in that sense, Jesus Christ was politically correct. He showed utter respect and dignity for all people, no matter who they were, no matter their creeds, no matter their racial background, no matter their social class. Jesus Christ gave dignity to humanity. So in that sense, politically correct, we're on board. But on the other side, political correctness has shaken hands with postmodernism and what we find is people saying under the guise of political correctness ah you keep your opinion to yourself i have a problem with that or you can't say that your way is the only way in fact uh, as john blanchard said the claim that there is no such thing as an absolute truth self-destructs because if there is no such thing as an absolute truth the statement itself cannot be absolutely true good point so we're told to respect the opinions of others and i disagree and in this sense jesus was not politically correct there's a big difference between respecting someone and even respecting their right to have an opinion and voice it that's very different to respecting the opinion that comes out their mouth in fact there are many opinions that if you respect it and allow it to impact your life, it would be incredibly dangerous for you. Personally, I would advise you do not embrace all political correctness. Embrace the good of it, but not necessarily all of it. Paul, in Ephesians, where we are tonight, makes some very radical statements that I would say are probably not very politically correct. But he says them courageously anyway. So I'm going to go through three sections tonight. Part one is Paul's radical statement about God. So let's go there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I ask tonight, as we look at these verses in the Bible, God, I believe these are inspired words. I believe divinely inspired. I believe it's your word. And I pray tonight as we study this, God, that each one of us, you know every single one of us, God, you know our lives. And I know that you love us. I pray that you would speak something into our hearts tonight, God that will draw us closer to you, and each one of us will go from here closer to God. I pray those who are far from you would be drawn near. Those who are sick would be healed. I pray you do a work among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul starts this whole this passage here by saying, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. Why is he saying, I'm a prisoner of the Lord? Why does he start that way? I reckon he's wanting us to know that what I'm about to talk about is serious. What I'm about to talk about, I mean it. What I'm about to talk about, I have paid a price for. I'm a prisoner of the Lord, he says. We see these six verses here, he divides up into two halves. The first half, verses one to three, he pleads for the church to be united. He says, bear with one another in love. He said, show gentleness and humility to each other. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. So he encourages us to be united. That's the first half. And then in verses 4 to 6, he makes one of the most divisive, globally divisive statements 
in all the whole Bible. So in one half he's saying, be united. And in the second half of the verses, he makes a globally divisive statement. In the, in the second half of the verses, in verses 4 to 6, he mentions the word one seven times. Three of those times he's referring to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. One Lord, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So three of those ones refer to the Trinity, God. The other four ones refer to our response to that God. Our response to the Trinity is one hope, one faith, one baptism. We get involved with one body. That's our response to the Trinity. So let's go into these verses. Let's start with how he looks at, focuses first of all on God the Father. Verse 6. He says, There is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He says that God is over all. He is vast. He is transcendent. He is immense. In 1977, Voyager 2 headed off up into space on a space adventure. It headed off faster than the speed of a bullet, 90,000 miles per hour. Off it went. And it kept that speed up, maintained 90,000 miles an hour, in a continuous direction for 12 years. It managed to get to Neptune 12 years later. That's the scale of our galaxy. Or not even the scale of our galaxy. Our sun is one of 100,000 million stars in our galaxy. Our galaxy is one of 100,000 million galaxies that are out there. There is some geek sitting in a room somewhere with a window open to the sky who counts this stuff. Uh, But nevertheless, this is the scale of the universe. And the Bible says in in a throwaway statement in Genesis, oh yeah, and he made the stars also. That's our God. Our God is overall. He is vast. He is huge. He is colossal. And yet, he is so huge, but he's also so intimate with humankind Paul also says he's overall sure but he also says he's through all and in all in other words he's intimate he gets involved with human beings he's not far away he's not distant but rather he gets involved the bible says he knows the number of hairs on your head for some of you God is having an easier job these days Um, the bible says he knows the thoughts that are in your mind even before you think them in fact he knows the motive behind the thoughts it says in Uh, chronicles in the old testament it says in psalm 139 that he knows your days even before one of them was yet to be he knew you in your mother's womb he knew you and he had a plan and purpose for your life the bible is crystal clear that god loves you and he knows you actually better than you know yourself that's incredible god knows you better than you know yourself And he wants to be intimately acquainted with you. And he wants you to be intimately acquainted with him. He is transcendent. He's overall. He's huge. He's vast. He's immeasurable. He's massive. And yet in the same sense, God is close, intimate, and wants to be involved in your life. Mind-blowing. Last week, I got into a conversation with a guy I haven't seen for about 12 years. And uh, 
he, he was talking to me about God and um, he, he, he opened up the conversation. That's rare. Usually I opened up that conversation, but he opened up the conversation. And as you can guess, I wasn't reluctant to talk. So. And he gets into this conversation about God. And so I asked him, so, so do you believe in God? And he said, I do, but not in the same way you do. I said, all right, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I don't see God as some personal God, some personality in the sky with emotions and feelings and communicating. I, I see him more as a force. As I mean, like, you know, the force be with you. You mean that? I said, yeah, that sort of thing. So he said, it was a force. And I said, so let me get this right. This force, you're saying, has created everything. That everything that's around us. I said, that's right. And I said, well, look at the world. I mean, look how awesome it is. It's huge. It's vast. It's creative. It's beautiful. Look at how God's made us. You're saying this force has made us. I mean, look how, how we've got abilities and we can think and we have personality, or, or certainly I do, and we, and we can communicate, we can talk, and we have emotions, we feel stuff, we have sensations, we, we see things and we say, that's beautiful. We value beauty. We, we value music. We value creation. We walk up a top of a mountain and we think, oh, whoa. We get things happening in us. We, we feel things. We think. We process. We analyze. We have wisdom. We have foolishness. We have all this stuff in us. And you're telling me a force made us. What's happened then is that this force created everything and the creation he made is more advanced than the force itself. Because you're telling me the force doesn't have emotions, the force doesn't have ability to talk, yet he was able to create all these things with all these abilities that he himself doesn't have? I don't think so. I don't see that. That doesn't make sense. It makes sense to me that a God who has emotions, a God who loves, a God who feels, a God who appreciates beauty, a God who gets upset about injustice, a God who is moved about stuff, that kind of God has created a people who have the same emotions. How could God create something that he himself was outside his sphere of experience? It's impossible. God has created us, and we see a God who's not an impersonal God, but rather a personal God. Paul says, one God and Father of all. God is Father, ultimately involved in human beings' lives, gets his sleeves rolled up, gets involved. <clears throat> you see, monotheists around the world have no problem with this. Monotheist means you believe in one God. The Jews, the Muslims, and the Christians make up 56% of our world's population. And up to this point, 56 of the world's population, percent of the world's population would hear what Paul said. There is one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And they would say, Paul, you're right. I agree. 56% of the world population are behind you in that one, Paul. Paul wasn't in prison for believing in God, the Father who is over all, through all, and in all. That's not controversial. It's where he goes next that's the controversial bit. He goes on then and talks about God the Son in verses 4 and 5. You were called to have one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Here he's making reference to Jesus Christ, one Lord. He makes reference to it again in Romans 10, 12. And he says, <clears throat> for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him. It's a beautiful description, isn't it? Abounding in riches. If you call upon him, he's abounding in riches towards you. The Bible says the same Lord is Lord over all, no matter whether you're Jew or Greek. In other words, no matter what your racial background, no matter what your religious background, no matter what your cultural background, there is one Lord over you. Now that's the controversial bit. Paul is in prison not for believing in God. 
Paul is in prison for believing in God the Son. That God Almighty took on human flesh, entered into human existence, was born of a virgin, lived an outstanding life, died a barbaric death on a cross on your behalf, on my behalf, because we're sinners. Paid the price we should have paid, took the hell we should have experienced, took the judgment that should have come our way. He paid it for us. On the third day rose again, is alive right now and offers you salvation. That's the claim that he believed for which he was in prison. Jesus also made radical claims. Jesus in John 14 verse 6 said this, in an equally controversial way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus there in a very exclusive statement says, let's narrow down your options folks. I'm the way. Buddha said there are 84,000 paths to enlightenment. Jesus says, no, no, I'm the way. That is politically incorrect statement. It's a radical statement. But nevertheless, it's what Jesus said. The Muslims would believe in Jesus. They believe in him as a prophet. They believe in him as a good moral teacher. Many other people in our culture have no problem with you believing in Jesus that way. But when you say that he's the only way to the Father, and when you look at the other claims he made about his divinity, he and the Father are one. Jesus is one and the same as God. Those are major claims that give people a problem. So some people say, oh, well, Jesus didn't really claim that. That's just what your Bible made him sound like he claimed. Well, forget the Bible for a moment. Outside of the Bible, there were historians living in that time, for example, Josephus and others, who were recording the events of the time with no Christian agenda at all. Many of them were against or skeptical about Christianity. And they were writing about Jesus and the life he lived, and they described him as a wonder worker. They, They acknowledged that he was hung on a cross because of his claims he was making. It is the case that he did make claims. The question you've got to ask yourself is, could he be a moral teacher or a prophet if he's making all these lying claims? Or is he indeed who he claimed to be? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. In other words, Jesus, you're making such radical claims, then we have to make a decision about you. Either you're making claims and it's not the truth, or either you're making claims and it is the truth. And if you're making claims and it's not the truth, then either you're one of two things. Either you're nuts You've lost the plot. You're believing stuff about yourself and you're deluded. That makes you mad. Or you're evil. You're deliberately deceiving people. You're saying stuff you know is not true and you go and say it anyway in order to deceive people. Jesus, you're either mad or evil or you're exactly who you say you are. My question is, would a mad and evil person have borne such phenomenal fruit on planet earth. Here we're living in a culture where our legal system is based on the teachings of Jesus Christ, especially those found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. His teaching has inspired justice throughout our world. His teaching has motivated millions to live lives that make an impact in the poor and the needy. 
great aid organizations and aid work has been carried out globally to a scale that no other religion or other person has motivated it. Jesus Christ's teaching has motivated that. Jesus Christ's teaching has caused our educational system in the United Kingdom to be birthed and education to spread globally because of the teachings of Jesus Christ. We see our healthcare system available for free for all came from people who were motivated by the teachings of Jesus Christ. Is that the fruit of a mad or evil person? My conclusion is no. And therefore I believe, and not just for that reason, but that's one reason I believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, exclusively. C.S. Lewis goes on and says in another place that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. The Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus for those three years prior to his death, after the resurrection, stands up in Jerusalem in front of thousands of people who have gathered, and he makes this declaration about Jesus. Acts 4, 12, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus, controversially, claims to be the exclusively only way to get to the Father, to get to God. The Apostle Peter confirms this. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given unto heaven among men by which we can be saved. Our response, Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus and he's saying, there's one Lord. And the response is, you have one hope. One faith, and you get baptized. So let's look at them. One hope. The hope that comes from believing in Jesus is phenomenal. It's in Metro newspaper that you get in the buses in January this year. They, they published an article, and it, said, it goes like this. It said that life in Scotland is not really worth living, a worrying number of young people claim. Research published today, that was in January the 5th, suggests that one in ten under 25s find life meaningless. According to the study, one quarter of all Scottish people aged 16 to 25 are often or always depressed, and almost 30% are less happy now than they were in their childhood. 20% admit that they're frequently driven to tears, and just under 50% say they're regularly overcome by stress. This age group is twice as likely, that's a 16 to 25 year old age group, is twice as likely to feel that life has little purpose in Scotland. That's our nation we're talking about here, right on our doorstep. Hopelessness. And it's not among young, old people who are in midlife crisis, it's among, it's among young people who should have dreams and passion for the future. Hopelessness. I, you know, I'm really glad that Jesus didn't give us shades of grey. I'm really glad he didn't come along and give us some wishy-washy thing, well, this is one of many ways to get to God. Jesus said, crystal clear, black and white, he said, I'm the way. And I have to tell you, that's what I need. Because one day, I'm going to be lying in my deathbed with eternity ahead of me. And I don't want to be in that moment wondering, did I pick the right way? I want to have my Savior telling me, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And you, Peter, have got to the Father through me. That's what I need. I don't need some wishy-washy shades of grey philosophical nonsense. Now we can debate it and jost about it here and now, but one day you're going to face God. And I want to have something solid. 
Last week I was talking to a friend who one of their dear relatives was at death's door. In the, in the days leading up to their death, they confided in my friend and asked, honestly, what do you think is going to happen next? Am I just going to cease to exist? Will I ever see you and your children again? Is this it? Here's a man at the point of death who's now died, wondering what's coming next. That's hopeless. You don't need to be hopeless in your deathbed. You can know Jesus. You can have one hope, a certain hope. Then Paul goes on and says, one faith. As I said earlier, the Apostle Paul wasn't in prison for his faith in God. The Apostle Paul was in prison for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the controversial bit. And Paul was in prison for the fact that he was promoting people to have faith in Jesus. You see, the, the, the gospel of how Jesus came and died for you on the cross and paid the price for your sins, the Bible says if you believe in that, you will be saved eternally. That's a big message. There's a story of a kid who was lost in a city one day and uh, he was distraught, didn't know where to go, didn't know where his parents were, couldn't find his way home. <clears throat> a policeman saw this lad really struggling, so he went over to him and said, are you okay, son? And he said, I, I don't know where I am, I'm lost. So he said, can you remember your address? And the little boy said, no, I don't. And he said, well, the policeman tried to remember some names of streets around the city and, and threw out as many as he could remember. And the little lads, didn't, none of them ring, rang a bell and he was desperate and panicking. And then as the, as the policeman's thinking, he notices and he suddenly remembers that right in the center of the town there, there's a large church building with a huge spire and on top of the spire there's a cross. I said, all oh, right. I said, son, do you see that cross up there on top of that church building? Do you recognize that? And the little boy looked up and he said, ah, and his face lit up. I said, I know. You take me to the cross. I know where to go from there. And you know, I, I believe that is how it is in life. I believe that you can have faith in an event that took place 2,000 years ago on your behalf. That the most remarkable event, the most amazing message is that God in heaven, the eternal creator who is transcendent above all, got his sleeves rolled up and he personally came, paid the price for you on the cross, dying for you and rising again so you can have an eternal life. From the cross, you can find your way. My faith as I face the future, my faith as I face eternity, and I pray your faith is in Jesus Christ. Not in your own goodness, not in how good you've been, but in him and how good he has been. Not faith in what you've done to get you there, faith in what he's done to get you there. You can put your faith in Jesus, and the Bible says when you put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. At the end of the service, if you've never done that, I'm going to give you the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. And it's not just some academic thing. He will meet you where you are and save you eternally. Awesome. And then he goes on and says, and you have one hope, you have one faith, then you have one baptism. And this is the response to someone who believes. They believe, then they get baptized. That's how it went in the Bible. <clears throat> what does baptism mean? Well, the Greek word for baptism here is the word baptism. Sorry, bap that sounds the same. Uh, baptisma, uh, which means immersion or submersion. And before it was ever used in the Christian world, it was used in a kind of everyday use when people would take a piece of cloth and dye it a different color. They used the word uh, baptisma. And what they would do is they'd take a piece of natural colored cloth and they'd have a tub with dye in it and they would take that cloth and they would immerse it in the dye and then bring it out and it would be an entirely different color. 
And that's the picture that I want you to have in your head when you're thinking about baptism. An example of baptism happening is in Acts chapter 2, verses 38, sorry, 37, 38, and 41. This is the Apostle Peter. He stands up after the resurrection of Jesus and he starts telling the people about Jesus. And thousands of people were there. And having heard about Jesus, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. That means stop living your own way and choose to start living God's way. So if you want to follow Jesus, you need to stop living your own way and choose to start following God's way. Repent and be baptized. Be submerged in water. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, it says, those who received the word were baptized in that day and they were added that that day about 3,000 souls. That was pretty good church growth in one day. The church grew rapidly on that day. You know, if you were a Roman soldier in those days and you wanted to become, sorry, if you weren't, if you wanted to become a Roman soldier in those days, you would have to stand up in a public ceremony and swear your allegiance to the Emperor Caesar. In the same way, someone who has become a believer in a public sense, gets baptized. And that is them saying, I am associating with one Lord, Jesus. And baptism is it's like your old life has been buried and you're rising against a new life. But let me say, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. Baptism is not essential for salvation, but it is essential for obedience. I know you don't need to get baptized to be saved. Uh, for example, the, when Jesus was dying on the cross and he enters into dialogue with one of the thieves, the thief on this side said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus here says, I, I tell you this day, you shall be with me in paradise if you can figure out some way of getting yourself baptized. No! <laughs> Baptism is not essential for your salvation. Faith in Jesus gets you saved. That's it. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. As radical as that, yet as simple as that. I mean, real faith. I'm not talking about wishy-washy, kind of, oh yeah, he's out there somewhere. No, real faith. But faith, the next step is you get baptized. And this is what Paul is saying. One Lord, and then the results of one Lord is you have one hope, you have one faith, you get baptized. So I encourage you to get yourself baptized. Next Sunday, we've got baptisms in the, in the 12 o'clock service across town in Leith. And um, if, you're, if you haven't yet been baptized, I encourage you to take that step. Uh, we, we don't believe in adult baptism. and We don't believe in infant baptism. We believe in believer's baptism. In other words, it's when you become a believer, that's the moment after which you get baptized. And baptism for us isn't sprinkling. It's what it says. It's baptism. Baptisma which means immersion or submersion. So we believe in believer's baptism by submersion. That's just what we see the Bible teaches. So one faith, one hope, one baptism in response to one Lord. And then Paul goes on. So we've talked about God the Father, now we've talked about God the Son, and then he talks about God the Holy Spirit. In verse 4 he says, there is one body and one spirit. <clears throat> there is one body and there is one spirit. Notice how he puts those two together. And I think they're closely linked. That the reality of us being a body, the church of Jesus Christ, is because of the Holy Spirit. Our interconnection, the reason we're drawn to each other, is the Holy Spirit. 
He says it in another way in verse 3. He talks about we should be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in verse 3 it says. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives as believers and he causes us to want to be around other believers. That's just a natural response. Some people ask me, Peter, um, should I leave my old, dead, dying, traditional church and come to your nice, lively, happy, clappy church? They ask me that question. And I say, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking entirely the wrong question. Okay, if, if if your physical body doesn't have a spirit in it, you are what? You're dead. You're gone. If a church doesn't have the Holy Spirit in it, what is it? It's dead. So the question isn't, should I leave a less lively church to go to a more lively church? The question is, is your church even alive? And if it's not alive, if the Holy Spirit's not in it, then it's just got the title church, it's not a church. Because the true church, it's a body with the Holy Spirit. That's it. The true church of Jesus Christ is alive with the presence of the Holy Spirit moving through it. It has nothing to do with whether the pastor wears jeans or whether there's drums on the stage. Zip to do with that completely. Nothing to do with that at all. You can go to a church where the pastor wears robes and, and there's bells and smells and there's an organ and all that. And yet, it's alive. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's there. Nothing to do with the form of worship. Everything to do with is the Holy Spirit in that body. If the Holy Spirit's moving among his people... And it's a sheer indication that church is alive. So it's not, the question isn't, is it, can I go to a livelier church? The question is, you've got to be in an alive church, and that's a non-negotiable. You can't be a believer and be in a dead church. How can you? You're wasting your time. God's never called you to be in a dead church. God's called you to be part of a living body of Christ where you can make a difference. He's not going to ask you, how loyal were you to some dead organization? He's going to ask you, did you do what I called you to do on earth? Were you part of the body of Christ making a difference in your city and beyond? Thank you for your enthusiasm on that revelation. Um, one body. That's a beautiful thought. One body. As because of one spirit moving among us. One body. You see, all across this world, the body of Christ is global. It's not just global. It's also, it spans time. You know, the body of Christ is all believers everywhere, Globally but also at every time. You know, my mum, who died in 1996, is part of the body of Christ today. She's in heaven, and the worship's so much better. She is totally part of the body of Christ. It's not just those who are alive just now who are part of the body of Christ, because the, the truth is, when you become a believer, you are alive, period. You have eternal life. You've entered into life. You can't die. Now, you may cease to exist physically, but you've got so much life in you, you're going to continue on eternally with God. My mum is very much alive, so much alive. And our eternal life, and you know, we're part of one body, which spans time and geography. You know, the amazing thought is that the world's population expanded from 1 billion to 6 billion people from 1900 to the year 2000. In one century, the world population went from a billion people to six billion people. I mean, that's unprecedented. That is incredible. The growth of the world population exploded. It means, it actually means that in the last 50 years, half of all the people in all generations put together 
half of all people who have ever lived were born in the last 50 years. That's amazing. Which also means that potentially today there are more believers on earth in the church on earth than there are in the church in heaven. And that's another amazing thought. So the body of Christ is global and it's timeless. But this isn't your excuse not to get part of a local one. You know, well, I'm part of the body of Christ. I don't associate with anyone around here, but, you know, you nutter. Find the church. Plug in. Get involved. You see, when the Holy Spirit's in your life, he will draw you to other believers. How can you be in isolation? And while it is the case that we're all, as believers, part of the body of Christ, globally speaking, there is so essential to be part of a local expression of that body of Christ. When I mean local, I don't necessarily mean the one on your street. Church Alive is worth the drive. It's cheesy, but it's true. And it's really important to be plugged into a local, alive church, not just a local church. It says in Hebrews 10, verse 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I want to encourage you, be committed to be part of a local church. Plug your life into a local church. And I guess you're here tonight, and maybe some of you are visiting. If, if, if you decide this is the church for you, you're very welcome. But equally, there are many good churches in the city. But wherever you go, plug in. Make your life count. It's interesting, in the TFUN survey carried out and, and published in 2007, they said that over half of the adult population of the United Kingdom, that's 53%, claimed to be Christians. However, one in ten adults attend church on a Sunday weekly. And one in four attend at least once a year. So while one in two claim to be believers, only one in ten go to church every week. And that's not how it should be. Because I believe that when people are part of local churches, then you can mobilize local churches to impact the populations of cities, impact the populations of a country, change culture, see things dramatically turn around. I believe that everyone is a part to play. And the church is here about advancing and taking ground. Our, our passion, why we exist as a church, is to win back the population of Edinburgh for, for Jesus. Within, uh, between now and 2027, we want to be 1% of our city's population. That's 5,000 people. And I pray that will happen for other churches in the city as well. We literally want to win back the population. We've got a long-term vision beyond that. But I believe that God wants to use us to impact our populations, be part of a local church. So there is one spirit, and as a result of that, we are part of one body. So that's part one. Part two is, what is the basis of our unity? So let's go back into the verses and ask that question. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul here is talking about the importance of being united as part of his body. Uh, he, he uses the word eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. The word eager there in the Greek language is the Greek word spodadzo, which means to make effort, to be prompt or earnest, to give diligence, to endeavor to labor, or to spare no effort. <clears throat> you see, if you are aware that there's a bit of disunity between you and someone else, then you've got to get off your rusty dusty and go do something about it. You've got to go put things right. You've got to get your sleeves rolled up and say, I'm not, I'm not going to accept that. If you're aware there's an air of tension between you and another, then go put it right. The body of Christ is so important, so precious. 
Go put it right. Go resolve. If you're aware that someone's got a grudge against you, go talk to them about it. If you're aware that there's an issue that's been outstanding and it's been just kind of causing an atmosphere, then go write the letter. Send the note. Make the phone call. Give them a kiss. Hug them. Talk to them. Do whatever it takes. Be eager. Get proactive. Don't wait for them. Even though you feel you've been wronged, no, you go put it right. Or swallow hard and get over it and forgive them anyway. But either way, you need to move forward. The body of Christ is so precious and unity is so important. The question is, well, what is the basis of our unity? You know, what causes us to want to be united as the body of Christ? Paul answers that in the next verses. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Then he goes on to make those statements. There is one body, one spirit. This is you were called uh, to one hope that belongs to your calling. With one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who's over all, through all and in all. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying the, re- the way that you get unity. Our unity. What's the basis of our unity? The basis of our unity is our conviction of God. One God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We're united because we have conviction of who God is. You see, many people pursue unity. And in fact, they pursue unity at any cost. But the Bible's primary agenda is not to get us to pursue unity. Our agenda has got to be to pursue the glory of God. Those who make unity the priority, tragically often sacrifice uh, conviction and truth on the altar of ecumenicalism. They say, we're going to have unity at any cost. And they, and they let go of their convictions. And they, they say, well, we'll just unite. It doesn't matter. We'll just water everything down and just unite. No. Paul's saying, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And in the next breath, he says, because there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, one God and Father, one Spirit. He's saying, you're united because of your convictions. That's what brings you together. Our goal is not unity. Our goal is the, is the glory of God. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, peace if possible, but truth at any rate. We're united around truth. You see, we have distinctions, but we should never have disunity. You know, some of you like kind of lively, exciting, hoppy-boppy music to worship God with. Others of you like quiet, contemplative, meditative worship like you have at Destiny Church. some of you like the formality of kind of liturgy and repeating things after the minister and and doing all that. Others of you like the informality and being a bit more chilled out about it, right? Some of you, you know, it's all different styles and shapes and forms. They're they're non-issues. They're just surface. They're just secondary. Primary is conviction in God. That's the primary. So in our world and among Christians, we have Methodists and Pentecostals and Baptists and Presbyterians and Bapticostals and Charismatics and Charismaniacs and all sorts of stuff, right? They're all out there. But the, the thing that unites us is we have a conviction in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our uniting factor, non-negotiable. And as a result, we have one hope. We have one faith. We've been baptized and we're part of one body. Our unity is around our convictions. Uh, John Stott put it this way. He said, We should all be eager for Christian unity, provided always that we do not sacrifice fundamental Christian truth in order to achieve it. 
Christian unity arises from our having one Father and one Saviour and one indwelling Spirit. So we cannot possibly foster a unity which pleases God if we, if we either, either if we deny the doctrine of the Trinity or if we have not come personally to know God the Father through the reconciling work of his Son Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's ironic that Paul with passion writes and says, be united. Not just in these verses, but in many of Paul's writings, Paul writes, come on, be united. But the same Paul who says that makes very divisive statements saying, there's one God, one Father, one Son, one Spirit, one faith, not many, one. Because he's not willing to sell out for unity. He's willing to sell out for convictions. And that leads me to part three. The global division over truth. Paul says there is one body, one spirit. Just as you've been called to one hope which belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all and in all. This statement unites believers but divides the world. It does two things. It unites believers but it does divide the world. You see, in truth, if Paul is right and if there is one God and Father, then all other gods are false. It stands to reason. If there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, then all other lords are false. There is no other. If there is one Holy Spirit, then all other spirits, there's no other. If there is one faith, then all other faiths are false faith. If there is one hope, then all other hopes are false hopes. If there is one church, united around the the Trinity, then all other organizations, even the ones that call themselves church, but are not united around Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are false. That's the controversy of what Paul is saying. He's nuts. But he says it. And he knows what he's saying. John Blanchard said this. Although theoretically all religions may be wrong, they cannot all be right. Because each has beliefs that claims that those of the others are false. R.C. Sproul said... When people say that all religions are basically the same, they are actually saying that they know little or nothing about world religion. And Ravi Zacharias says that every person who claims that all religions are the same betrays not only an ignorance of all religions, but also a caricatured view of even the best known ones. Every religion at its core is exclusive. So why share our faith? You know, if there are many truths out there, if there are many ways to God, why should we share our faith? Well, if you believe, as Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you believe that, and you believe what Paul says, that there is one God and Father, there is one Lord, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's one Spirit, meaning that all other gods and all other lords are false. If you believe that, and you have any concern for other human beings, then you're going to want to tell someone your truth. You're going to be motivated out of deep, deep, eternal concern 
for their eternal well-being, you're going to want to go tell someone about Jesus. The challenge is, you believe in one truth in this pluralistic society that you're in for a rough ride. If you believe in one truth, as I do, in this pluralistic society, people will accuse you of arrogance. They will say, you are arrogant for saying that your truth is the only truth. And my question is, well, what do you mean by arrogant? Because we have misdefined arrogant and we've misdefined humility. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. And this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the man, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part that he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. In other words, in our day and age, it's humble to be the person who says, well, I'm, I'm a good guy. But, well, you know, there are many ways to God. Wow, what a humble person. That's humble in postmodern world. That's humble. But in God's definition of humility, humility is, I'm just me. But oh, God is amazing. And if Jesus, if you say that you are the way, the truth, and life, then I bow to you. And out of love for people, I'm going to share that with people. I don't think that's arrogance. I think in God's definition, that's humility. It's like the, it's like the ant pointing at Gibraltar. As if Gibraltar represents truth and ant represents a human being. And, and that ant points at Gibraltar and says, you're false, Gibraltar. Would it not be wiser for the ant to cower under the shelter of that rock? Also, if you stand for truth and say, my truth and Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You stand for truth in a postmodern, pluralistic culture, then they will accuse you of intolerance. And my question is this. If you were to go to your doctor with some disease that was life-threatening, and the doctor was intolerant about that disease, and he does everything he can to try and fix it, would you say to the doctor, you are so intolerant. You are so intolerant. How? No, well, that's me stupid. Because the doctor has wisdom. He knows that that thing's dangerous. And he wants to do everything he can to get it out of you. Now, if Paul is right, as I believe he is, that there is one God and Father of all, there is one Lord Jesus Christ, and there is one Spirit, and there is one faith, and there is only one hope, and you can get baptized and get part of the body then surely you're going to be intolerant of things that are diseases that are going to ruin human beings. Surely your perception that if someone else is believing something that you know to be a lie, then you're not just going to say, oh, well, on yourself. Like a doctor saying, well, you've got a disease, but you know, you're still their own. <laughs> it's not helpful. You will be intolerant, but not out of arrogance or bigotedness. You will be intolerant out of love. Intolerant. Yes, we are. We are but not out of bigotedness, out of love. I'm not giving you an excuse to become some narrow-minded, bigoted, weird, 
Christian who kind of gets in people's face and Bible bashes them and forces it down their throat, not using love. I'm not giving you any excuse for that because that is not like Jesus Christ. Jesus was stood for truth. We know he stood for truth. He stood, stood for truth at the expense of his own life. But nevertheless, Jesus was not bigoted, nor was he arrogant, nor was he anti-people. He loved people. He associated with any people. He showed genuine concern. He was intolerant, sure. And he humbled and he walked with humility before God. If you stand for truth in a pluralistic society, they will also thirdly accuse you of being ignorant and narrow. You're an ignorant and narrow person. What you need to do is, you haven't seen enough of the world, obviously. You're very narrow-minded in your Christianity. You haven't seen, you need to go to Iraq and spend time with some Muslim people and learn about another religion. You need to go to Tibet and hang out in a monastery and hang out with some Buddhists to understand some bigger picture out there. And I will say to you, you're right, I am ignorant. For every one thing I know, there are a hundred million things I don't know. But also you are ignorant. For every one thing you know, there are 100 million things you don't know. We're like people in little boats in the sea of ignorance. We don't know a thing. Even the person with 10 degrees is like an ant in the sea of knowledge that could be known. We are ignorant, sure. But imagine this. If you're in a wood and you're lost and you're hungry and you're dehydrating, And you know that if you remain in that woods, it won't be long before you die. And then you find yourself wandering around that woods. You don't care if you can name all the trees or not, right? You're not not thinking about that, right? You're not worried about the woodland creatures. Can I name them all? No, you want to shoot them. You're frustrated, right? You're hungry. Squirrel, furry things. Right? It means nothing. Who cares? I don't don't know the names of these things. You don't, you don't care if, you, if, if there's all these paths going all over the place. It doesn't matter. It means zip to you. All you want to know is, show me the path to get out the woods. That's all you need to know. And when you find the path to get out the woods, you are narrow. Yes, you are ignorant. Sure. But I got out the woods. And when you experience God, when God comes and gets a grip of your life, When you understand the magnitude of what this transcendent God did for you on the cross. When you understand the implications for your life and you accept it. And you don't just intellectually accept it, but he grips you. He changes you. Then you become very narrow. And you become very passionate for human beings. You've tasted truth and you're spoilt for anything less. Why dabble with everything else? Why not just get on with the great mission? You know... As W.E. Sanctus has said, the heart of Christianity is not an opinion about God, but a personal relationship with Him. When I'm talking about truth tonight, I'm not talking about, I'm not trying to equip you so you can argue a case and beat someone. I don't mean, that's nothing to do with that. I'm talking about a great truth, a one truth that you can base your life on about God, about the Trinity God about his love for you, about the faith, the one faith you can have in him and the one hope you can have in him. When you grasp that and when you meet God, it's not intellectual. It's life-changing. The Assemblies of God World Missions revealed that of the estimated thousands of new believers in Iran over the past few years, 
They estimated that over half of them, based on the reports they're getting, half of the Muslims turning to Christianity, have had personal visions or dreams of Jesus appearing to them in the night or during the day. It wasn't that someone argued the case with them and persuaded them. They met Jesus and they were convinced. And they changed religion in a culture where if you change religion, you could be put to death. In December 7th, 1990, Tahir Iqbal, a Muslim convert to Christianity, was imprisoned because he had turned from Islam to becoming a follower of Jesus. He knew that the threat against him was the death penalty. And when he was asked about the possibility of being hanged because of his faith in Jesus, this man, who was paraplegic, and in a horrendous prison, in a lot of discomfort, when he was asked about the possibility of being hanged because of his faith in Jesus, he answered, I will kiss my rope, but I will never deny my faith. He died in prison two years later, on the 19th of July, 1992. You see, when truth has gripped you, you might think, what a fool. I don't. I think there's a courageous man who believes truth despite the pressure around him now. The pressures around him in that part of the world are physical threats. The pressures around us in this part of the world is prior pressure to yield to political correct opinions. Not the good kind of political correct, but the negative kind of political right. Pluralism. Accepting all religions. Accepting all ways. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to offer shades of grey. He came to offer us truth that can change your life forever and give you a way out of the wood that you're in, to give you a rescue plan, to give you freedom. Believing in God is not controversial. 56% of our world's population profess to be monotheists, believing in one God. Believing in God's salvation plan through Jesus Christ, coming to this earth and dying for you on the cross and rising again is controversial. What will your response to be, be to one Father, one Son, one Spirit? What will your response to him be? I want to urge you to let your response be, I'm going to have one hope in him. I'm going to have one faith in him. I'm going to get myself baptized in response to my faith in him. And then I'm going to get my life planted in a local body of Christ where I can grow in my faith and make an impact in this world because of him. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for the magnitude of your salvation plan. God, I want to thank you that I thank you that, that we can even talk to you. You are so huge, God. You are omnipresent. You are everywhere all at once. You are just as much here as you are on Mars just now. And yet, your interest lies here with human beings. Your interest lies here with your creation, your people. God, thank you that you are God and Father. And you're not just overall, you're also in all and through all. You're involved. You're intimate. You're close. And your plan for human beings is great. And God, you not only love us, you not only know the number of hairs on our head, you not, know, not only know about our lives even before we were born. Jesus, you actually came to this earth 
And out of incredible love, you were willing to sacrifice yourself on behalf of us. You were willing to take our hell for us so we wouldn't have to go to hell. You were willing to take our sin so that we could have forgiveness. And you rose again from the dead. You're alive now. And we worship you as the one Lord of all the earth. As the one Father. As the one Spirit who is amongst us just now. We honour you God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We respond to you. We put our hope in you. We place our faith wholly in you. And we plug our lives into your body. Jesus Christ, you mean the world to us. Give us courage to know truth. Not just intellectually, but help us to know it experientially. God, move among us. Touch our lives. I pray for those who have never experienced your love. I pray tonight they will experience the touch of God in their bodies, in their lives. Touch people so deep in their souls. Let them know you so deeply, God. Let them never be the same as a result. Come Holy Spirit, have your way right now. Just while we're praying, I'm going to give you an opportunity tonight. If you know you're far from God. If you don't know what it is to have one hope, one faith. You haven't crossed the line in your heart and put your whole faith in Jesus. Then why not tonight? Why not make the biggest decision you could ever make? Become a follower of Jesus. Put your whole faith and hope in him. Why not make that decision to help you to do that? that's you and you want to make that decision I'm going to help you very simply I'm going to pray a prayer a prayer of commitment and if that's you and you want to put your life right with God I invite you to repeat this prayer after me just quietly under your breath repeat this word for word after me and let this be your prayer from your heart to God that's you tonight just repeat this just now pray dear Lord God thank you God you are the creator you are amazing you are vast <clears throat> thank you God you are also intimate close and loving God I realise I've been living like you're not there and tonight I acknowledge you and from now on you're the most important one in my life Jesus, thank you for your incredible love that you were willing to die on the cross for me. I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I needed you to do that for me. And I ask that because of your death on the cross that I ask right now I could be forgiven. Completely. Thank you. I believe Jesus in the third day you rose again. I believe you're alive right now. Tonight, I place my whole faith in you as the saviour of my life. And Jesus, I set you as Lord in my life. You are my one Lord. And I commit to being your follower. I turn from my old ways and I choose to the best of my ability from this day forward follow you with passion thanks for hearing my prayer thanks for accepting me tonight as your child amen keep your eyes closed if anyone prayed that prayer you have just done 
phenomenal thing. And God has heard your prayer. I'd love the privilege of praying for you. If you prayed that prayer, and you made that commitment tonight, I'd love to pray for you. In order to know who I'm praying for, I can just ask you to do a very simple thing. If you prayed the prayer, just while everyone else's eyes are closed, just simply raise your hand very quickly and put it down again. Thanks. Thanks. Anyone else? Just quickly put your hand up. Thank you. Anyone else? Before I praise it, you prayed that prayer, you made that commitment. Before I praise it, anyone else? Okay, God, I pray for my three friends tonight. God, you know what they did tonight. You know the decision they made before you. And God, I know you heard their prayer. And God, I thank you, Father God, that tonight, according to the Bible, when they asked your forgiveness in that moment, you granted. You were only waiting to be asked. God, I thank you in the moment when they put the faith in you. That that's the moment where your Bible promises they now have eternal life. I pray that we know the reality of that. And I pray, God, that right now they would know what it is to be a child of God. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Let them know the acceptance of God change their life forever in Jesus name let this be the beginning of a great journey with you God let them plug their lives into a good local church where they can grow and let them make a difference with their lives in Jesus name Amen Amen let's stand to our feet we're just going to end by worshipping God and uh, my friends put the hand up at the end there that was a good decision you made uh, before you go I'm going to get one of my prayer partners to quickly come and say hi to you They'll offer to pray for you again if you want to be prayed for. But they've got a pamphlet which we want to give you which explains what it means to be a Christian. So we want you to take that and get a chance to look at it in your own time. Let's worship God.